we really have handled this COVID pandemic better than I'd argue any other country in the world. And even though we've effectively locked out international tourism and students, the 95% of the economy that is left is humming. And we, we're on a really good trajectory from here. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. I appreciate the support as always. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. This month, I spoke to Jared Kerr. He's the chief economist for KiwiBank. We talked about the economic outlook for New Zealand, the housing crisis and what the recent rule changes mean for housing prices. He also gives us some financial advice and we talk about financial literacy or lack of it in New Zealand. I hope you all enjoy this month's episode. I'm Steve O'Ely. Thanks for tuning in. Firstly, again, um, thanks, Jared, for coming on the podcast. And um, can you just give us a bit of an insight into your background prior to Kiwi Bank? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. My background is, is one of economics and, and financial markets. So that only appeals to, a, I think, a very small percentage of people. But for those of us who are in the profession, we, we absolutely love it. It is an exciting profession to be in. I started out my economics right from school. The only subject I was any good at was <laughs> economics. I was hopeless at just about everything else. My England was terrible. My maths was not bad, but the rest of the subjects I had very little interest in, funnily yeah. enough. I managed to get myself an A bursary on my economic score alone, <laughs> and that got me into uni. And I didn't know what to do, so my teacher said, look, there's a Bachelor's of, of Applied Economics at Massey Uni. It is the only thing you're good at, so off you go. In and, uh No, actually in Auckland. So it was. I was the second year that that university was open back in 96 and did a master's there. Then they sent me overseas to do a PhD. My PhD fell over, unfortunately, but I ended up getting a job at JP Morgan, which is a very large investment bank as an economist and uh, worked there for a number of years, moved to the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and then moved to Credit Suisse, which was probably the best company I've worked for overseas and I was based in Singapore and I spent three months a year on the road traveling around the world selling Australia and New Zealand basically selling our government bonds to investors and that was a lot of fun but then at some point you look at yourself and you look at you know your, your wife and, and and you do have a discussion about where you want to bring up your child and there's no better place than New Zealand so we came home in, in 2018 and here I am. And what perfect timing in terms of uh, who could have predicted that <laughs> coming oh, in 2018. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, I, yep. I tell you that much, yeah. Yeah, definitely probably the best country in the world to be in at the moment, I would say. Yeah, not, not just at the moment, mate, all the time. I appreciate you're a busy man, but what does an average day at Kiwi Bank look like? Well, I think one of the attractions 
to being an economist or a, or a strategist or, or someone working within financial markets is that we really can say no day looks the same as the other. So, for example, today you do your, your morning meetings with traders and treasury going through what's happening in financial markets and what we're expecting from the economic data going uh, into next week. And then you do a podcast and then you go back <laughs> to work and you pump out a regional note, which is what we're trying to do today, looking at the regions and how they're performing and they're performing very well. And then I'm on a flight to the mighty Hawke's Bay this afternoon to do uh, a number of presentations tomorrow and then come back on Friday. And, you know, that, that is just an example of, of what we do, but every day is different and that's the fun part. Sounds like you need a PA for that, this sort of job. Yeah, no, yeah, we don't. <laughs> That's exactly right. We do need one, but we don't have one. <laughs> yeah. Surprised you're answering your own emails, to be fair. <laughs> Given that you're uh, looking at the outlook going forward and stuff, can you give us a bit of an insight into the economic outlook for New Zealand? Yeah, when I, when I look at New Zealand, I like to start off with the world. Because we are a small, open economy and we have such a large export sector, it is great to get a handle on what's happening around the world. And we have seen a demand shock. People focus on the supply disruption, but we've actually seen a demand shock. Demand is much stronger than anyone anticipated. So demands for goods in particular have been you know, very strong. And demand for New Zealand goods have been very strong, which is great. So our dairy exports, timber, uh, all of the above are, are in decent demand. Then we look at our economy locally and we really have handled this COVID pandemic better than I'd argue any other country in the world. And even though we've effectively locked out international tourism and students, the 95% of the economy that is left is humming. And we, we're on a really good trajectory from here. Um, I'm no economist myself, but I um, got the impression that tourism was a huge part of the New Zealand economy. It is. It is. So international tourism is about $17 billion, we estimate, and I think we may overestimate, but that's another story. And then you've got universities on top of that. And when you add those two together, you get 5% of your economy, the other 95%. But that, that is a significant chunk. Don't, yeah. don't, uh, don't, don't downplay it. You know, there's many parts to this economy. And that is one part that we're probably more proud of and, and probably quite loud about, you know, that tourism part, because, yeah. you know, we're in one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Yeah. But yeah, it's about 5%. And if you close that off, you're running with one of your economic engines basically stalled. So, you know, it, it is significant. But what we've seen is with interest rates at, at record lows, with government pumping lots of money into infrastructure, We've actually seen, a, again, another demand shock for housing, residential particular uh, construction around housing and infrastructure works. And without the migrants coming in that we normally pull in to help with these surges in demand, we've got this shortage of skilled workers. We've seen quite large inflationary pressures in, in those parts of the economy as a result. Of course, we always end up on housing. I'm talking to an economist in New Zealand. One thing I'm quite curious about, I know it's it's a topic that gets flogged at the moment. With the recent government changes in housing policy, have you seen or, or do you anticipate any changes to the current housing crisis? 
Uh, we have. So we have seen changes in, in investor appetite, and I think we will continue to see those changes coming through. I was talking to one of our property finance team yesterday, and he was telling me that the demand that they're seeing from investors is quite interesting. It really is being funneled into new builds. Yeah. So the price of subdividable land in areas like Auckland and around New Zealand is going up at a faster rate than land that's not subdividable. And people are subdividing now. So they're taking that block, block of land and they're trying to split it up into, you know, five, ten townhouses because they know that investors are keen on new builds and new builds only from this point on. Yeah. And I think that's great, just quietly. I think that's one part of the government's policy that's actually worked. You've nudged investors into new builds, so that should help push supply. Because there's two things that have really driven house prices to these you know, crazy growth rates of, of 30% in the last year. The first is that we slashed interest rates to record lows, so that fuels any housing market. But the second, and, and I would argue more important point, is that we are undersupplied. We have not built enough homes, full stop, and we focused on the wrong homes or the more affluent homes rather than the affordable homes. So what we need to see over the next five years is a significant lift in, in the supply of homes. And we've modelled the shortage, which is our way of saying we've looked at population growth, we've looked at the number of homes being built each year, and we haven't kept up with population growth for the last 10 years. So we have a shortage of around 70,000 homes. That's the whole <clears> of the Hawke's Bay. It's a massive amount. And when you talk to a number of builders, you know, the bigger builders are producing sort of 100 homes a year and the really large builders are producing maybe 1,000 homes a year and Kangaroo is producing a bit more. We don't have the scale that we see overseas and these builders are, are really struggling to lift their capacity. Is it entirely a supply and demand thing though? From what I understand, New Zealand is one of the few countries in the world that doesn't tax housing like the rest of the world and if i was a savvy investor and i had heaps of money lying around i would go and potentially buy 10 new builds and then sell them on at a profit because it's easy money to make that doesn't get taxed yeah so so long as you hold it for that five year bright line period which in investment terms isn't that long yeah. even if you buy an existing dwelling and hold it for 10 years that is well within most people's thought processes, you know, in terms of horizons. So yeah, it, it is a, or has been a, a very attractive option for most Kiwis for, for, that, for that reason. You're not getting taxed on it, on those gains. And that's something that will probably be addressed with time. But right here, right now, you're right. You look at your investment options out there and, you know, buying a new build, at a rental yield, which is probably above the interest rate that you're paying on your mortgage, which is the important point. The return coming off that investment is still reasonably high. It's proven to be a, a pretty good investment for most Kiwis. And I was speaking to someone the other day that said um, they've just paid off their house. Uh, they're in their 40s. And they said, I was sort of saying, oh, are, you, are you going to be looking at shares? And he said, no. The easiest investment in the world at the moment is investing in New Zealand housing. Why would you go anywhere else? 
Yeah, and it, it is a shame, and and I think that's been that mentality's started, in my opinion, in, in the eighties after the share market crash. There, my father was a classic one of those. We lost some money in the eighty-seven crash and has, has never put money back in. And then you've had a few crashes along the way in the nineties and earlier in the two thousands. And people really do look at it and go, it's, just, it's too volatile. Housing can be volatile too, right? And we forget that house prices can fall. But, you know, over a long, longer term, same with equities. If you stick in it, you generally come out ahead. And I think it's very much our culture. We love bricks and mortar. We don't quite understand other markets. Plus the fact our equity market is tiny, very small. You look at any of our super funds, most of them who invest in equities are forced to invest in international equities because there's simply not enough uh, companies listed. Can you give a brief explanation as to what an equity is for our Oh, sorry. So, so a stock, the companies that list themselves on a stock exchange and say, here, I'm valued, you know, I think, at a million dollars. Here's a million shares for sale at a dollar each. So you can call them stocks or equities. And... In purchasing that, you're purchasing a very, a very small fraction of that company like Tesla. And we just don't have enough Tesla-like companies on our stock exchange because the bigger, sometimes more successful companies in New Zealand end up list, listing overseas to get access to even larger funds. So unfortunately, our financial markets aren't as developed as I think they should be. That being said, though, there is, um, for someone looking to invest, there's no reason that they couldn't invest in an overseas share. Oh, absolutely. And it's becoming easier and easier with these companies like ShareZ and, 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 and others to, to get involved. And look, I own a house, but I didn't always. And the you know some of the best advice I was given from a friend, she worked at A&P Capital at the time. She said, look, just put your money into a fund. You know, there's no point putting your money into a term deposit. Just every month, just have money coming out and it goes into a fund, which is then invested into shares. Yeah. Nowadays, you, you might not have to go to the fund. You might just automatically put it into, you know, a portfolio of, of shares. Because let's face it, if you put money in the bank today, you're getting a little over 1% less yeah. tax and then you're down into the into the point somethings. Not even inflation. Not even a third of inflation. So we really do need to think of ways in which we can try and generate a bit more return. Talking about the likes of Hatch and Sharesies, what's your sort of feeling about them in terms of people with not much financial understanding having open access to the share market? It's a, a very good question, actually. It's a very good question. I like the fact that you can get access, and I think people deserve to, to be able to get access. The understanding of the volatility in any financial market is the difficult part. You know, I've invested in shares throughout my life. I spoke to about AMP before. I bought AMP at $12. Thought it was a fantastic buy because it was trading at 20 and it dropped to $4 and never recovered. Oh. So I can give you plenty of examples of shares that I buy and they go nowhere, if not, uh, if not fail. I, I put money into a company called Metals of Africa because I was convinced they were going to find gold. Obviously, that blew up in my face. I bought all sorts of stuff. So if you're buying penny stocks, which we all get excited about, uh, or even blue chip stocks like AMP, there is definitely a risk that, that they don't do what you expect. The best advice... I've heard is from Warren Buffett himself saying, 
you know, just buy the index, just buy yeah, the ETF. And I, I've done that, and that seems to be the only consistently good trade I, I've had on stock markets. And buying, I was buying US equities, and then you also get the benefit of the currency if it moves in your favor. So, yeah, th there's a lot you can do, and I think people deserve the access. But if you're buying a, a cheap stock on a, on a dream of a discovery like I did, quite often they don't pay off whereas if you buy in a, an index which is made up of a number of stocks you'll at least you know meet the market and the market is definitely a, a lot higher than, than what you'll get on a term deposit i think mary home had very similar advice to the warren buffett advice if you're going to invest with a, a company that does or financial advisor the costs per year of whatever fund they're putting it in or a managed fund ends up being more expensive in the long term than just putting it into a um, an ETF. Yeah, the I like I like the ETF structure. Now, my next question, I'm a little bit concerned I should, whether I should be asking you this or not, considering. Well, now uh, I'm concerned. <laughs> considering the uh, what's happened with your previous investments with the AMP and the uh, the, <laughs> the African advice, but um, if you had one piece of financial advice for listeners, what would it be? I think it would be what I said before around the advice I was given from a, a dear friend from university uh, and she told me to put money in, in into something every month and the idea is to, to get it ripped out of your account as soon as you get paid. I still do that today and I think it's the best form of savings. When you're investing into something and it's physically ripped out of your account before you can spend it, yeah. I think that's the, the key part to start with and then picking mm -hmm. whether you want to go into ETFs or whether you want to pay a fund manager to look after it for you, that's your call. But I think we don't seem to save enough as a nation and, and very few of us, according to many surveys, have a pool of funds that we can fall back on in, in hard times. If you had to choose between putting that money into your mortgage or putting it into a fund, which would you do? For me, it's mortgage because it, I'm actually quite leveraged owning a home. At current rate, I, I don't think I'll have it paid off by the time I'm 65. So <laughs> I've got to get cracking. Where, whereabouts are you based, Jared? Uh, based, based in Mission Bay, Auckland. One thing I did want to say, just in terms of New Zealand not being the best savers, when I was reading Mary Holmes' book about financial advice, she was talking about how people need to pay off their debts before they even consider spending in funds or investing in whatever they, they, they want to invest in. I think there's definitely a significant percentage of the population that don't make very good financial decisions. What's your feelings about, it's sort of a two-part question, what is your feelings about loan sharks? And then secondly, do you think there needs to be limitations on um, people using credit cards? Two good questions. So with regards to loan sharks, Kiwi Bank's got quite an aggressive stance against predatory lending because most of the time this sort of lending is done to people who have the least knowledge around financial products and they come from the, the poorest areas. So they really are targeting the most vulnerable in our economy, right? They're not going to target you or I because we, we know that we can get a loan from the bank or we know that we can do something else or we know that 27% interest compounded daily is an outrage whereas someone 
you know, who, who has no exposure to interest rates or loans and doesn't understand, just signs up. Plus, in behavioral economics, there's a thing around focus. And when you're starving or, or when you're really struggling, you cannot really think clearly. You're focused purely on yeah. getting food or getting help for your dying mother. It's yeah. then, it's right then that these people pray. And yeah. I think it is an absolute disgrace. And I think agree. we should be doing more to, to get rid of the, that practice. And I, I think mean, banks have a role to play as well. We it's have a role. Theft, to be honest. Oh, literally. Yeah. And it's, you know, arguably legal. And I don't think it should be. Um, but banks have a role to play too. You know, we can't just sit here saying, oh, that we need to get rid of that. We need to get out there into the schools, which we do through Banker, trying to educate the kids because that's when you're most able to pick up new things and make sure that they're somewhat stronger going into their adulthood, knowing not to deal with these sorts of lenders. And that is something I'm reasonably quite proud of, actually, that we do it at, at the KB, is we, we work with Banker to educate kids on financial literacy. And it's something I wish I had when I was at school, because yeah. I had to learn this stuff when I left, you know. I'd yeah. never paid rent before, never paid insurance. I'd never paid this, that, the next thing. All of a sudden, it gets lumped on you when you leave home in your late teens, early 20s. Yeah. I would have loved to have gone through all of that at school, you know. That's one of the things I think schooling really fails us. I learned about the Russian Revolution in the 1400s or whenever it was, and it's such irrelevant information. And yet I left school with basically no idea about budgeting, no idea about how to invest your money, all the sort of basic things that you need to... And even just learning that even as a um, high school student, when you're earning your $10 an hour or whatever it was back then, even if you were saving 10% of that back then, that would be a significant amount of money if you'd invested that in shares. And giving yeah. um, kids the understanding that the earlier you invest, the more significant that investment is in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And I think it's something that needs to be put into the school curriculum, but it also, I think, uh, it's an embarrassing thing too for a number of people we've noticed that as we try and get into the schools a number of the teachers are turning around saying i i don't know what to do myself well this is this is a win-win then you know you everyone's learning at the same time but that's quite uh, hard for an adult to admit but it just shows you the low level of financial literacy in in new zealand um, and i think globally well i'm not just saying this is a kiwi problem but yeah. it's something that we can handle and, and we should address I'm amazed that it's ever been legal to have loan sharks because everyone knows that they're just preying on people in unfortunate situations. And sort of to elaborate on your comment earlier about the, uh, what did you call it, the focus narrowing yeah. when you're in poverty, um, I heard somewhere that when you're in financial hardship, your IQ drops by one standard deviation. There's actually like research to show that people are effectively dumber yep. when you're under financial stress. So I wouldn't use the term dumber, I would just say focused. Yeah. It's like your your brain puts all its energy yeah. into one part, which is the part to try and find food, you know what I mean? You can't access the other parts because you're so focused. And and these studies started after World War Two, looking into starvation and, and what happened to a number of prisoners of war. And, you know, so it's come from a horrible background, but these problems 
still exist. You know, there are people out there who are starving. There are people out there who are really struggling, who are cold, who are constantly sick. And when you're in that state, you're not sitting there flipping through the New Zealand Herald and having a look for the next stock. You're desperately thinking about how you're going to pay next month's bill. So to go back to that sort of second part of the question, credit cards definitely have their place in society. If you know how to use them properly, like I use my credit card all the time, but I always make sure that I've paid it off before the next month. But then again, there's those people that probably don't have as good a financial understanding. Is there a way to best manage people that are financially not in a good place and still want credit card debt? Well, we try to as banks. I'm, I'm not sure the last time you went to grab a credit card, but it, when, you, when you come in, there will be a limit applied to you based on your circumstances. So you might go in there and the bank says, okay, here's a $1,000 card or here's a $10,000 card or, or hello, sir, with your massive salary, how much do you want, sir, sort of thing. So there's, 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 <laughs> we do sort of limit depending on income. And the other side of it, you know, Kiwi Bank and other banks have done a lot of work in lowering the interest rate on credit cards. You can get a credit card now for around 10%, just under, you know, 9.95 or something like that. That to me is is a whole lot better than the 20% that we were used to. So there has been a shift down in the interest rate on credit cards. Some still have higher rates, but, you know, you, you've got the choice now of a, of a low rate card. And when you think about personal lending rates, you know, those personal lending rates are sort of 6 to 8%. Now, people don't understand the credit risk, what we as banks have to face here. So if I give you a credit card, that's literally giving you $1,000 cash. You can spray that on anything, right? And that money's gone from our perspective. Now it's up to us to try and get our $1,000 back. And that was someone's term deposit just quietly. Now... A personal loan which has a lower interest rate you go out and buy a car right if you go into hardship at least there's the car there it's not worth the same but at least it's it's there it's something that can be grabbed if needed so the risk associated with a personal loan as opposed to just throwing cash out the door is significantly reduced that's why those interest rates are lower and then if you think about a mortgage rate well the risk associated with the house is far far lower because unless house prices are falling the bank will get their money back so that's why we have interest rates that increase uh, along the way your point around the, the limits that we give customers and i guess the interest rate on those credit cards those things can always be looked at and thought about better but i think just in my experience, what's happened over the last three years, we, we have had quite a decent step in the right direction. On the interest rate front, I don't know about how much we offer per income sort of thing, but I imagine that if you're on low income, I find it hard to believe that banks would give you a credit card of 10000 but maybe 1000 yep. But $1,000 is still a lot of money to a lot of people. Yeah, and I guess... Um... We've got to look at it from the bank's perspective too. They can't just be handing out money and there not being any consequences to that. Yeah, people forget that. Too. People forget that. And people have a go at you too. When I was working at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, it was amazing the number of, of stories we would hear of customers coming into the bank and saying, can I have a credit card? And, and they said, yeah, yeah, here's a credit card. They walk off and spray the money. 
And then I don't know whether they were pretending or whether they actually didn't know, but a lot of them would turn around and say, I thought you'd given me the money. I didn't realize I had to pay it back. I was like, no, that's a credit card. You have to pay it back. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that will have a go and, and take the money and not pay it back. Yeah, I think it all comes back to financial literacy and, and um, yeah. people being better educated. So hopefully that's something that we can look to change in our education system. Absolutely. I think that's that's key. I would have loved to have gone through the banker course when I was at school. You know, the banker course is so, so much fun. You know, they have jobs. They either pay rent or they go out and buy a house. They invest in the share market or they start up companies. They're paying insurance. They're going through what an adult would go through in their lives. They're talking about careers and and stock picks. I mean, I would have loved that as a kid. I appreciate we're short on time and I won't go into further detail on why you ended up going to Australia instead of staying in New Zealand. But um, <laughs> cheers, Jared, for uh, coming on the podcast. All right, thanks, mate. That was fun. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.